Welcome to Small Pleasures, the podcast that discusses great short stories and greatness in the short story form. My name is Livy Michael and I am a novelist and short story writer from Manchester, England. And this is Sonia Moore, a short story writer and translator from Paris, France. Bonjour. We have come together because of a mutual enthusiasm for the short story, although I think our responses and what we want from a short story vary, and we hope that the differences will provide a fruitful discussion. In this podcast, we're discussing the short story Red Market by Sheila Armstrong, a writer and editor from the northwest of Ireland. Red Market is from her first collection of short stories, How to Gut a Fish, published by Bloomsbury in 2022. Uh, so Livy, tell me, why did you choose this story and what's it about? This book was recommended to me by one of the international students on my MA publishing course and I was struck from the start by the distinctive voice and linguistic world contained within these stories. Red Market in particular seemed to have a visionary quality, which is why I chose it. The story is set in a marketplace and we only gradually realise what is for sale, which is implied in the title. Sonia, what does the title suggest to you? For me, the title announces the flesh trade, but what's then presented is the sort of black market or grey market that many Western Europeans would be familiar with. And only four pages in do we pick up this question of the flesh trade. And what do you think is the purpose and effect of this? And what of the five little lines before the story start that word please stood out for me? Yes, an interesting word to begin with, associated with interaction and persuasion, although in this case it seems to be an imperative. I'm not sure the title does announce the flesh trade, I only gathered this in retrospect. It announces colour, which is interesting, since the rest of that world as described is rather grey. I didn't automatically associate red with flesh or blood, I actually thought of politics. We begin with the prosaic announcement about items for sale, the quotidian and banal, which as the story goes on suggests Hannah Arendt's phrase about the banality of evil. I'm really interested that you captured the greyness of this world, and the story perhaps reads this way emotionally. As you point out, there's this shocking banality. I found the story loaded in colour, a purple futon, pink cheeks, a blue shawl, white sheets, rainbow glitter, and then again and again red box, red suit, red light. Uh, I'm used to reading red as danger, like spilt blood, so I'm excited to hear of your association with politics. It shows how much each reader brings to a story, what a dynamic relationship a text has with readers. I often work with colour palettes and I think red can be useful for catching the reader's eye. There's a story called The Egg by Alison Moore, where the plot's impact depends on the reader picking up on flashes of hollyberry red. And filmmakers use this technique too, like the girl in red in Schindler's List. Yes, excellent point. The colour obviously made a different impression on you, which is great. It's the reader's eye as well as the writer's crafting the story. In an earlier podcast, you mentioned Flannery O'Connor's quote about all writing beginning in the eye. What seems distinctive about Sheila Armstrong's eye to you? I think it's very purposeful. The world is being drawn up in a certain way and it's an unsettling world. The gaze doesn't settle and we're not quite sure where we're being taken. The names Agatha, Marcy, Andrew are interesting and there are lots of European references. Le Creuset, etc. My question about this first page would be where are we? 
And maybe we need the level of detail because we're not quite sure. Yes. We often talk of, story, of starting stories in the middle of an action in media res, but this one rather drops the reader into a place. I felt like I'd been dragged and dropped like the Google Street View stick figure. I certainly felt like you say that I was asking where am I, processing a bombardment of sights, signs and names. My reading was that we were somewhere in the Republic of Ireland. Did you have the same reading? Well, only gradually. I thought I was somewhere in Europe at first, but I think you pronounce it Andrew, but it's spelled A-I-N-D-R-I-U, and I think that's an Irish spelling, but at first I interpreted it as Greek. I get that. <laughs> Perhaps there's a connection to the roots of the name. Uh, your comment maybe highlights how this story requires us to acclimatise and not jump to conclusions. Uh, Armstrong's eye seems both dispersed, taking in everything, surroundings, people, creatures, objects, and very alert to the nature of each individual thing. So it's panning all the time, butterflying, which can perhaps be exhausting, but might also be essential to this story's success, as we keep being distracted, as in life, from the central horror. Good point, and a reminder that we're dealing with the collective, I think, rather than the individual. The shifts in focus and gaze reminded me of the opening page of Bring Up the Bodies by Hilary Mantel, where Cromwell's eye and the readers pans out over England but returns repeatedly to his falcon. And there's a similar sense, I think, of not being quite sure where we are. And then Jane Eyre in the famous Red Room scene, where the gaze circles the room but keeps returning to the bed where Mr Reed has died. The objects in the room are red or mahogany, but the bed itself is white. So there are similar gothic touches here in the orchestration of imagery and the palette, as you say. Can't think what else to call it. Much of what described is dingy and grey, but the idea of redness recurs. Yes, that insistent redness. Can you talk a little bit more about what attracted you to this story? I admire it, but I found it an emotionally punishing read. It's not easily read in one sitting as a result, despite this being one definition of a short story. But the story seemed really important and necessary, and ambitious in subject matter. And it maybe even goes beyond questions of the flesh trade. It might be a metaphor for the human cost of Western capitalist society more generally. Yes, this is what I take from it, and the sense of ordinary human interactions occurring within the larger context of atrocity to which we are blind or we blind ourselves. We point towards certain individuals and regimes as monstrous without being aware of our own monstrosity. I see Red Market as being a story about humanity rather than any one individual and therefore having a wide scope and fundamental truth to it although is that only because I agree with it. Some short stories have an epic quality, such as Ted Chiang's Tower of Babylon. And I think maybe this one does also. It's certainly bold. It's a bold thing to do, and I like that boldness. When I think of my great books list, many of them have a kind of epic quality, as in they have something to say about humanity as a whole. The Old Man in the Sea, Wise Blood, As I Lay Dying, Ridley Walker, The Waves. I'm not sure that many contemporary novels have this, but I think that some short stories do. I also think there's a rebarbative quality to Armstrong's writing that generates discomfort in the reader and makes a reader resist being drawn in. Certainly I couldn't finish reading the title story, but then I am vegetarian. That's a great point. 
it's, it's possible to admire greatly without liking, isn't it? And this perhaps links to the idea of greatness in, in, this, in the short story, that they don't necessarily ask to be liked. They're not crowd-pleasing. Exactly. Is this story an allegory, then, where characters and events symbolise a deeper spiritual or moral meaning? And does allegory work in the context of the contemporary short story? I think of allegory as an older medieval and religious form. Someone once said that allegory stands in a one-to-one relationship with reality, which makes this story rather different from the last one that we discussed, Tessa Hadley's Bad Dreams. Is it the allegorical quality you have a certain resistance to? I mean, Shakespeare said art holds a mirror up to nature and Brecht said that art is not a mirror held up to society but a hammer with which to shape it. I love your quotes. I'm attracted by the Brecht one. Uh, But can a short story ever really change the world? I love the idea of artivism bringing about change through art. And this may seem contrary, but I did feel that I was being overly, overtly uh, messaged by the story. And yes, I think this generates resistance, at least in me. I guess like most humans, I don't like being asked to change. Uh, trying to think about allegory in a dispassionate way, I went to check on the dictionary definition and saw that the word has roots in the ancient Greek word agora, or marketplace, with all its associations of speaking publicly. That seems wonderfully apt for this story. Oh yes, it does. And I love the word artivism, great. Certainly I think the scene and the imagery is drawn up in a very purposeful and cohesive way so that everything works towards the delivery of the central theme. I think perhaps the art of it is to get you to see something differently, even if just for a short while, and that can be an oblique way of bringing about change. How might a story like this fit with the trend for sensitivity warnings? Would a warning make it more respectful to readers or diffuse the power of the story? Good question. I don't think I agree with sensitivity warnings. Does this story depend on a certain shock value? Now I'm thinking of the Brechtian alienation effect and its roots in Russian formalism, making strange so that we see the full horror of a particular experience or event. That works for me. One of the reasons I stopped eating meat was that I realised I was in the fortunate position of not having to slaughter anything. And when I did buy meat, I would buy the kind that came in packets, which bore no resemblance to the original animal. No fish with the heads on or anything I had to gut, as in the title story. But perhaps you find the message too blunt. I empathise with your difficulty with meat. Too much reality there can be a hard thing, psychologically and emotionally. Uh, to go back to your Brecht quote, this story might be more of a hammer, say, than a delicately open curtain. Each view of the girl felt like a strike, and the story is viscerally shocking. The story doesn't seem to offer uh, the story doesn't seem to seek to offer a fun read, but rather to unsettle. Uh, Graham Mort's story, A Walk in the Snow, which we discussed in our second podcast, seemed to play on the tension between beauty or pleasure and suffering. But Armstrong seems to be working her craft to say, look at this, demanding attention for the purpose of raising awareness. As you point out, troubling readers might be a measure of success for this story. Delicately open curtain is such a great phrase. And I think, yes, troubling, unsettling could be applied to most of the stories in this collection. And Armstrong's prose is supercharged in compounds, metaphors and similes. 
Uh, often writers use these to build toward a central theme, like Graham Watts' A Walk in the Snow, where he weaves a complex pattern with recurrent motifs. Armstrong seemed to do this sometimes, for example, with lots of things at chest height and the lungs of the person being traded, being subject to ever greater pressure, and uh, the helmet that makes air taste like blood, or the light blinking red. But very often qualifiers seem to focus uniquely on the item being described, so attention was perhaps scattered around the market. Well, again, this is a story with a lot of description. We keep choosing those. I love furniture like undigested chunks of bone, which I think is on the first page, and the details about the bed frames with slats missing, the Virgin Mary described like a doll. I love the fat, greying woman with the crumpled tissues. She was great, wasn't she? What a brilliant cameo. I find the random focus very effective in this because of the market and the idea of a market as a metaphor for human society and the banality of evil, to quote Hannah Arendt again. There is the flotsam and jetsam of what is bought and sold. And isn't this like a second-hand market full of things that people have finished with or thrown away but that can be reused? And I think Armstrong does create a linguistic world that is distinctively hers. What she describes as the strange alchemy of flesh to coin also applies to her prose, the strange alchemy of concrete to abstract. On the front cover of mine, Roddy Doyle has a quote. He describes it as unsettling, unpredictable and brilliant, which seems really apt. I do think that it's unsettling, unnerving even. And Samuel Johnson said that in John Donne's work, heterogeneous ideas are yoked with violence together. And I think you find that in the imagery here, the juxtapositions of colour and theme, the kindness and the cruelty, etc. Marcy, who loves her daughters, but who is slowly killing the girl, humanely, in terms of the syringe. Yes, and the idioms, these recurrent phrases casually exchanged along with familiar social interactions, all juxtaposed with the girl's ignored suffering. And the girl herself seems to accept her suffering, would you say, to accept that she has to die. She gives someone a strained smile, she doesn't seem to panic. Does she seem complicit or accepting of her suffering? That's a great question. There are some very strange reactions from her, aren't there? Shifting to accommodate a potential shopper, for example. I'm still not sure how to read them. Yes, good. Is, is this where the story becomes more complex? Maybe. Is, is she being complicit or being meek and blameless? Or perhaps she's someone so totally stripped of agency by society and circumstance that the only option is to be agreeable. Yes, and that adds to the horror, of course. There are many cameo appearances, the young couple and the tricycle, the children, the animals and objects, the sense of heterogeneity, but again, that beautiful focus that makes each one stand out so we remember them. That is one of the impressive features of this story, isn't it? Yes. Each one is really gifted attention, which humanises them and builds towards Armstrong's effect. And how ironic that the owl is taken by people to illustrate the brutality of nature, while the people themselves are blind to their brutality. This came to mind when I was reading a blog by the writer Jan Fortune, who refers to Clayton Eshelman's book Juniper Fuse, and its theory that the modern mind was born of a process whereby early humans separated from the natural world, suppressing the animal within and then without. And this disconnect seems to express itself in the blindness you mentioned to the central horror of the story. The girl's situation depends on her being seen as goods or other, rather than as a fellow human creature. 
And the human world, with its artificial snow and rainbows reduced to glitter nail varnish, and its exchanges, which are apparently so civilised, mask both our connection to all things and our brutality. And yet kindness is a word that keeps coming up. Yes, absolutely. And keeps being demonstrated by the people. For example, letting pedestrians pass on a red light or an uncle pretending not to have seen his nephew's clumsiness. Uh, and all this is only to then be undermined by the situation of the girl. The story plays on our kindness too, our empathy, curiosity and fear for the girl keeps our attention keen. We're looking out for her all the time. I don't know that I'm looking out for the girl, but I do feel fearful as references to her make it clear she's dying. I would like to look away, but can't. Is this the point of the story? And I think the idea of kindness is central, oddly, that human kindness occurs within the larger context of atrocity. But does that make it meaningless? It's perhaps possible to glimpse the potential for salvation through the kindness, the potential for a different way of being and doing. And what about the references to the girl's skin being too dark for the market and the child touching minstrels with caricatured features? and Armstrong's choice for the person being traded to be female. At the same time, the girl is anonymous and we learn little about who she is as a person, only about who she is as a type. We know she's someone's young daughter, has two brothers, is from a village. Is this too generic? It does seem important that the person is darker skinned than female, but the main point seems to be that we have few clues as to who she is. We never get to know her as a person. So she represents the exploited and abused races or gender. There are graphic biological details. The ovaries, the scar where one kidney has already been taken. Yes, I think of that term, which seems to me quite dehumanising for organ removal, harvesting. What about the composition of the story? We've referred to the shifts in focus, but is there also something to say about pacing and suspense? I was really interested in the composition. There's a reference per page to the girl for the first four pages, then a pattern of intensification and eclipsing. So about two references per page and one reference per page across four pages. And then a sudden disappearance, so no references, followed by a more intense presence than ever, with the last section kind of infused with the girl's presence as she's dispersed. I'm sure Armstrong didn't approach the story by counting out references, but it's fascinating to see a pattern come through, and it corresponds to other storytelling patterns. In A Hero's Journey, for example, you often get that same kind of double dip with the hero seeming to come close to their aim, then further away before coming back stronger. I guess Armstrong carefully paced the references for suspense, whether knowingly or instinctively. Yes, I think there's a very skillful composition then, building in intensity, then dispersing. But the last page carries an impact, doesn't it? Absolutely, that last line. What does it want us to take away? It seems to offer salvation, but I found none, and this is perhaps the point, the shiny loveliness of the stuff we buy compared to the unbearable cost. That's a brilliant description of the last line. And is it also that what stands out from all human interaction, what we create, is death? That's a terrifying thought, that we're top predators. I like to think that stories like this can be a way to push back against that, 
creation versus destruction. Lovely. That made me think about Thomas Keneally, The Playmaker, which is often on my list of great novels. It's about the first convicts sent to Australia, and when they arrive in this exotic alien land, utterly debilitated, not knowing if they will survive, they stage a play. It's stunning. It made me think that what we can set against all human atrocity and suffering is art. Mm, Beautiful. What is the relationship between this story and Tessa Hadley's Bad Dreams? There's a different use of symbolism, but the same sense that we can't settle into any one kind of reality. I mean, Red Market could be read as a dystopia or gothic horror or allegory. They do both present a very recognisable place and present at the same time elements that discomfort or settle. Hadley is perhaps more subtle and psychological in her approach and Armstrong more allegorical. I think both writers displace the reader. We think we're in one world or kind of reality and then realise the boundaries have shifted and we're somewhere else entirely. I must confess, despite the fantastic elements, I didn't read the story in terms of gothic horror, so that's really interesting for me to see it through this stylistic angle. Which leads to my usual question, Livy. How to write a story like this one? Well, I think first of all, you'd have to have something to say about humanity and then choose a central image that conveys it and construct a setting that is at once alien, i.e. we don't know where we are, and kind of familiar in a banal kind of way with closely observed naturalistic detail like the wet melt of cardboard on the pavement. Then there are the shifts of focus that bring us back repeatedly to the thing we don't want to look at. If I had to describe Armstrong's eye, I would say it is sharp, purposeful and bold. So it would really be about cultivating that kind of vision and moving between worlds and genres. In several of the stories, like the first one of the collection, Whole, the minutiae of reality is vividly described, yet we discover we're not in the real world at all, but some kind of parallel universe with a potential for horror, for the cataclysmic or at least startling. Brilliant. Thank you. Sheila Armstrong certainly has a unique writerly eye. Startling, vivid, compelling. I think that's what I like about the collection, How to Gut a Fish as a Whole. The sense that there is a unique vision behind it, reflected in the language as well as the content. Not at all a comforting vision, rather the opposite. But I do find it stimulating and provocative. It provoked me into wanting to write, which is a good thing from my point of view. It can only be a good thing. Beautiful words make for beautiful words, right? Well, let's hope so. So once again, thank you for listening to this Small Pleasures podcast and do keep our eyes and ears open for our next. Watch this space. We have many great short stories to cover. But until then, goodbye from me and Sonia. À très bientôt.